Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss a meteor blast in the Russian sky, the discovery of King Tut's tomb, and a brutal prison riot in Mexico. February 15, 2013. A meteor explodes over Russia, injuring nearly 1,500 people as a shockwave blows out windows and rocks buildings. The Shalyabinsk meteor entered Earth's atmosphere over the southern Ural region in Russia at about 9.20 a.m. It was 65 feet in diameter, weighing 11,000 tons, and traveling at nearly 67,000 miles per hour as it entered Earth's atmosphere then reducing speed to 43,000 miles per hour, which is still almost 60 times the speed of sound. The light from the meteor was momentarily brighter than the sun, visible up to 60 miles away. It was observed in a wide area of the region and in neighboring republics. Amateur videos showed a fireball streaking across the sky and a loud boom several minutes afterwards. Some eyewitnesses also reported feeling intense heat from the fireball. Witnesses in Shalyabinsk said that the air of the city smelled like gunpowder, sulfur, and burning odors starting about one hour after the fireball and lasting all day. The object exploded in mid-air at a height of about 18 and a half miles. The explosion generated a bright flash, producing a hot cloud of dust and gas that spread over 16 miles and created many small fragmentary meteorites that fell to the snow-covered ground below. Most of the object's energy was absorbed by the atmosphere, creating a large shock wave. The asteroid had a total kinetic energy equivalent to the blast yield of 400 to 500 kilotons of TNT. This was 26 to 33 times as much energy as that released from the atomic bomb detonated at Hiroshima. The object approached Earth undetected before its atmospheric entry. The explosion created panic among local residents, and almost 1,500 people were injured seriously enough to seek medical treatment. All of the injuries were due to indirect effects rather than the meteor itself, mainly broken glass from windows that were blown in when the shockwave arrived. Car alarms went off and mobile networks were overloaded with calls. Office buildings in Shalyabinsk were evacuated. Classes for all schools were canceled, mainly due to broken windows. Over 7,000 buildings in six cities across the region were damaged by the explosion's shockwave, and authorities scrambled to help repair the structures in sub-freezing temperatures. With an estimated initial mass of about 13,000 to 14,000 tons, and measuring about 65 feet in diameter, it is the largest known natural object to have entered Earth's atmosphere since the 1908 Tunguska event which destroyed a vast remote forest in a very sparsely populated area of Siberia. The Shalyabinsk meteor is also the only meteor confirmed to have resulted in many injuries, although no deaths were reported. Some studies have suggested the explosion was more powerful than Tunguska, and comparable to that of the Tsar Bomba, the most powerful nuclear weapon ever created. The infrasound waves given off by the explosions were detected by 20 monitoring stations designed for nuclear weapons testing, including the distant Antarctic station over 9,000 miles away. 
the blast of the explosion was large enough to generate infrasound returns after circling the globe at distances as far as 53,000 miles. Multiple arrivals involving waves that traveled around the globe twice have been identified. The meteor explosion produced the largest infrasounds ever to be recorded by the infrasound monitoring system, which began recording in 2001. They reverberated around the world several times, taking more than a day to dissipate. The Shalyabinsk meteor struck without warning. The Prime Minister of Russia confirmed a meteor had struck and said it proved that the entire planet is vulnerable to meteors and a space guard system is needed to protect the planet from similar objects in the future. It was then proposed that there should be an international program that would alert countries to objects of extraterrestrial origin and potentially hazardous objects. It is estimated that the frequency of airbursts from objects 70 feet across is about once in every 60 years. There have been incidents in the previous century involving a comparable energy yield or higher. The 1908 Tunguska event and in 1963 off the coast of Prince Edward Islands in the Indian Ocean. Both of those events were over unpopulated areas, although the 1963 event may not have been a meteor. Centuries before, the 1490 Qingyang event of unknown magnitude apparently caused 10,000 deaths. While modern researchers are skeptical about the number of deaths, the 1908 Tunguska event would have been devastating over a highly populated area. Here's my take on the Shalaya Banks meteor. I think I covered the Tunguska event on a previous episode, and I may have even covered the 1963 event in the Indian Ocean too. I covered some. I talked about some kind of flash. I don't remember what it was, and my take is probably going to sound identical to what I said about the Tunguska event. How good is the monitoring system for these events? Let's dump billions more into that program, please. If you haven't seen Greenland with Gerard Butler, I highly recommend that movie. I, I probably recommended that after I talked about the Tunguska event too. But I don't fucking remember. Anyway, I highly recommend that movie. It's very intense and probably realistic in how the world would react in an extinction-level event involving a meteor. An event happening like that in the real world terrifying. February 16th, 1923. Howard Carter unseals the burial chamber of Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Howard Carter was a British archaeologist and Egyptologist who discovered the intact tomb of the 18th dynasty pharaoh Tutankhamun in November of 1922, the best-preserved pharaonic tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings. In 1907, Carter began working for Lord Carnarvon, who employed him to supervise the excavation of nobles' tombs near Thebes. The head of the Egyptian Antiquities Service recommended Carter, knowing he would apply modern archaeological methods and systems of recording. In 1914, Lord Carnarvon received the concession to dig in the Valley of the Kings. Carter led the work, undertaking a systematic search for any tombs missed by previous expeditions. In particular, 
that of Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Excavations were soon interrupted by the First World War, with Carter spending that time working for the British government as a diplomatic courier and translator. He enthusiastically resumed his excavation work towards the end of 1917. By 1922, Lord Carnarvon had become dissatisfied with the lack of results after several years of finding little. After considering withdrawing his funding, Carnarvon agreed, after a discussion with Carter, that he would fund one more season of work in the Valley of the Kings. Carter returned to the Valley of the Kings and investigated a line of huts that he had abandoned a few seasons earlier. The crew cleared the huts and rock debris beneath. On November 4, 1922, their young waterboy accidentally stumbled on a stone that turned out to be the top of a flight of steps cut into the bedrock. Carter had the steps partially dug out until the top of a mud-plastered doorway was found. The doorway was stamped with indistinct oval seals with hieroglyphic writing, known as cartouches. Carter ordered the staircase to be refilled and sent a telegram to Carnarvon, who arrived from England on November 23rd with his daughter, Lady Evelyn. On November 24th, 1922, the full extent of the stairway was cleared and a seal containing Tutankhamun's cartouche was found on the doorway. This door was removed and the rubble-filled corridor behind was cleared, revealing the door of the tomb itself. On November 26th, with Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and assistant Arthur Callender in attendance, Carter made a tiny breach in the top left-hand corner of the doorway using a chisel that his grandmother had given him for his 17th birthday. He was able to peer inside using the light of a candle and saw that many gold and ebony treasures were still in place. He did not yet know whether it was a tomb or merely an old cachet, but he did see a promising sealed doorway between two sentinel statues. Carnarvon asked, Can you see anything? And Carter replied, Yes, wonderful things. The tomb was then secured to be entered in the presence of an official of the Egyptian Department of Antiquities the next day. However, that night, Carter, Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Callender apparently made an unauthorized visit, becoming the first people in modern times to enter the tomb. Some sources suggest that the group also entered the inner burial chamber. A small hole was found in the chamber's sealed doorway, and Carter... Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn crawled through. The next morning, on November 27th, there was an inspection of the tomb in the presence of an Egyptian official. Calendar rigged up electric lighting, illuminating a vast hall of items, including gilded couches, chests, thrones, and shrines. They also saw evidence of two further chambers, including the sealed doorway to the inner burial chamber guarded by two life-size statues of King Tut. Despite evidence of break-ins in ancient times, the tomb was virtually intact and would ultimately be found to contain over 5,000 items. On November 29th, the tomb was officially opened in the presence of a number of dignitaries and Egyptian officials. Realizing the size and scope of the task ahead, Carter sought help from the Metropolitan Museum's excavation team while the Egyptian government loaned analytical chemist Alfred Lucas. The next several months were spent cataloging and conserving the contents of the chamber. On February 16, 1923, 
Carter opened the sealed doorway and confirmed it led to the burial chamber containing the coffin of King Tutankhamun. The tomb was considered the best preserved and most intact pharaonic tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings, and the discovery was eagerly covered by the world press. However, much to the annoyance of other newspapers, Lord Carnarvon sold exclusive reporting rights to the Times. Only Arthur Merton from the Times was allowed on the scene, and his vivid descriptions helped to establish Carter's reputation with the British public. In March, Lord Carnarvon contracted blood poisoning while staying in Luxor near the tomb site. He died in Cairo on April 5, 1923. Lady Carnarvon retained her late husband's concession in the Valley of the Kings, allowing Carter to continue his work. Carter's meticulous assessing and cataloging of the thousands of objects in the tomb took nearly ten years, most being moved to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. After the clearance of the tomb had been completed in 1932, Carter retired from excavation work. He continued living his winter months in Luxor and retained a flat in London, but as interest in Tutankhamun declined, he lived a fairly isolated existence with a few close friends. In 2022, a 1934 letter to Carter from Alan Gardner came to light, accusing him of stealing for Tutankhamun's tomb. Carter had given Gardner an amulet and assured him it had not come from the tomb, but Reginald Engelbach, director of the Egyptian Museum, later confirmed its match with other samples originating in the tomb. Egyptologist Bob Breyer said the letter proved previous rumors and the contemporary suspicions of Egyptian authorities that Carter had been siphoning treasures for himself. Here's my take on the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb. Ancient Egypt is very interesting to most people for good reason. The mystery, the architecture, the dynasties, it's amazing to visualize at its peak. I don't think the Egyptians built the pyramids. I think they found them. But as always, I don't have a fucking clue. And maybe they did. February 19th, 2012, 44 people are killed in a prison riot in Apodaca, Nueva Leon, in Mexico. Mexico City officials stated that at least 44 people were killed, with another 12 injured in the riot. The fight was between Los Zetas and the Gulf Cartel, two drug cartels that operate in northeastern Mexico. 37 prisoners escaped on the day of the massacre. One of the fugitives, Oscar Manuel Bernal, known as the Spider, is considered by the Mexican authorities to be extremely dangerous and is believed to be the leader of Los Zetas in the municipality of Monterey. The fight broke out around 2 a.m. local time between inmates in one high-security cell block and inmates of another high-security cell block. The guards of the prison allowed the Zeta members to surge from cell block C into cell block D and attack the Gulf Cartel members, who were sleeping. Each cell block contained roughly 750 inmates, with members of rival drug cartels normally separated. The members of the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetas clashed in the prison, using mostly sharp-edged weapons. Some of the victims were strangled, 
thrown out of windows, stabbed, beheaded, hanged, bludgeoned, and crushed. Security personnel eventually regained control of the prison by 6 a.m. Not all prisoners were able to be counted, but by the time the dead prisoners were counted, the public security spokesperson speculated that the riot may have been started as a cover for a jailbreak. By the time the riot ended, 44 inmates who were members of the Gulf Cartel had been killed, while 30 inmates of the Los Zetas drug cartel were allowed to escape by the prison guards. Government sources revealed that the fugitives were high-ranking members in the organization, former police officers, or drug dealers. An investigation was immediately launched into whether some of the 17 prison guards on duty colluded in the fight by unlocking the doors between the two wings of the prison. The prison director, the director of security, and the supervisor on duty were all detained for questioning. It was later confirmed that the riot and brawl served as a cover for a massive escape for the members of the Zetas drug cartel. The mass murder in Apodaca is the deadliest prison massacre in Mexico's history. Prisons in the state of Nueva Leon are plagued with violence and are under the control of the criminal groups that operate in the area. The Apodaca prison was built to house 1,500 inmates, but had around 3,000 incarcerated at the time of the riot. After the split of the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetas in early 2010, both groups have been battling for Monterey and other areas in northeastern Mexico. More importantly, the massacre and the involvement of the prison guards in the escape highlights the problems facing Mexico and Latin America's prison system today. Since President Felipe Calderon launched a military-led offensive against the Mexican cartels in 2006, the prisons have turned into battlefields for rival cartels, often leading to violent fights and frequent deaths. Many prisons are essentially run by one cartel or another. Eric Olson of the Mexico Institute at Wilson Center remarked, The strategy has been to arrest a lot of people, but when you warehouse criminals in prisons that are overcrowded and poorly managed, you are likely to have this kind of warfare break out inside. The Apodaca prison riot was the third riot to result in 20 or more deaths since October of 2011. And according to the writers of Insight Crime, Mexico's prison system is slipping into anarchy with inmates slaughtering each other at alarming rates. Gang violence and breakouts are common in Mexico's notoriously overcrowded and corrupt prison system. Fifteen days before the massacre, the family members of the fugitives claimed that the inmates had planned to break out. And as the investigations began, officials in northern Mexico reported that Los Zetas, with the help of several jail guards, helped the 30 fugitives escape from the prison. The spider may have been the major leader in the riot and escape. Investigations indicate that the directors of the prison accepted up to 40,000 pesos and that the guards around 6,000 pesos in bribes each month. The family members of the prisoners claimed that the inmates had certain privileges inside jail, like holding big parties with hookers everywhere and special permissions from the prison authorities in Apodaca. The mother of one of the prisoners said that her son claimed the prison was under the control of the narcos and that they were often given permission to leave the prison and come back after they finished doing their business. Another witness claimed that the guards were directly involved in the escape of the prisoners and the drug trafficking business inside the prison walls. 
It costs the Zetas about two and a half million pesos a year to bribe the prison officials. Twenty-one former officials from the prison in Apodaca were apprehended on March 15, 2012. Among them were three high-level officials. Twenty-four of the 37 fugitives had been arrested or killed as of August 3, 2012. Here's my take on the Apodaca prison escape. Although it's usually at a smaller scale, this type of shit happens all the time in Mexican prisons. Most of the police are corrupt and most of the inmates are ruthless. Sadly, some of the inmates are minors that almost seem forced into cartel life. Cartels aren't just an epidemic in Mexico, it's a major part of their economy. There's no solution as long as there's that much corruption in Mexico. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next time.